You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 33 with Glennis Oyston. Now, you might remember her as the co-host of Dietitians Unplugged, which is a podcast that ran for five years. Glennis is a registered dietitian nutritionist based in Texas and is a certified intuitive eating counselor and body image coach and works a lot with diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes. So what we're going to talk about today is diabetes, why weight loss and cutting carbs and all that stuff is not that good for people with diabetes and what you can actually do to help yourself if this is something that you struggle with. All right, let's just jump right in. All right, Glennis, let's do this. I'm excited to have this conversation. I need to learn way more about diabetes. But before we jump in and talk about the specifics, can you just share a little bit about you and your work? Who are you? Yes. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on, by the way, Rochelle. I'm excited to be here. I love podcasting. I'm a former Really? Podcaster. You've only done it yeah. for years. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a former podcaster. So I'm Glennis Oyston. I'm a registered dietitian. I am currently in Texas. I see clients at a few other places where I'm licensed. And I am a certified intuitive eating counselor and a body image coach. And I help people in my one-to-one coaching recover from eating and body image issues and eating issues specifically. Um, I primarily work with people who identify as overeaters, emotional eaters, mindless eaters, any sort of eating problem where somebody thinks that they are, they think that they're overeating. Usually that's not the problem, but those are the people (laughs) I sort of work with. And I've been in private practice for I think six years now. Wow. Six or seven years. Honestly, it's flying. The last two years were a blur. So I did host a podcast, Dietitians Unplugged with my friend, Aaron Flores. And now I also run an online program, Self-Care for Diabetes with my friend, Rebecca Scritchfield, who wrote Body Kindness, the book, Body Kindness. And yeah, that's sort of what I do. So the course is about diabetes and intuitive eating and all that stuff. Yes. So it's a weight-inclusive, weight-neutral program for people with diabetes or diabetes concerns. So it could be somebody with a family history. It could be somebody with pre-diabetes, diagnosis of pre-diabetes. And we just found that there are dietitians who work like that. But we a few years ago, there were not that many courses that did that kind of weight-inclusive care for health at every size, non-weight-centered approach to health for diabetes. So we started running groups and then we turned those groups into a course eventually. And yeah, and so we have this online program and it's monthly group support. So we do still meet with people and it's really exciting. Our program members are so inspirational and they are so great at supporting one another. And they always express to us how thankful they are to have this non-diet diabetes coaching. So this program helps people to make changes, non-diet type changes, non-restrictive changes that they might need to do to help improve their health with diabetes. So let's back up for a second. What is diabetes? Okay. So diabetes is 
there are a few different types. So there's type one, which is an autoimmune disorder in which a person's pancreas does not make insulin, which is needed for our bodies to metabolize glucose and use it for energy. So we take energy in through food and glucose is our primary food that provides that energy and it comes from carbohydrates. So our body breaks down the carbohydrates, liberates the glucose, it goes into our cells with the help of insulin. So in somebody with type one diabetes, their pancreas does not make insulin anymore. And so they're completely dependent on using insulin injected. And they have a variety of ways, you know, there there are pumps that do that and people can still inject it sort of, I don't know the better word to say, but manually. (laughs) But there are many ways that they can sort of manage that, but they have to absolutely use insulin. And then there's type two diabetes, which is the much more common form of diabetes. And that is when the cells start to become resistant to the insulin that the pancreas is making. I think why that happens is not entirely known. There's many, many guesses out there. And unfortunately, there's many anti-fat bias messages, I think, out there about why that happened. For a long time, people like, oh, if you gain weight, you're going to get diabetes, which is such a I don't know. It's, 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 let me use the buzzword of today. It's kind of misinformation. (laughs) So, and so the body becomes resistant to insulin. So the pancreas is probably still making insulin and the body's just not, the cells are just not kind of reading it anymore. And so the blood glucose hangs out in the bloodstream and, you know, causes some problems and increases your blood sugar. And, you know, you're not getting the energy that you need from food and it causes some problems hanging out in your bloodstream. Those are the So type two is sort of the more, the more common kind. And then there's gestational diabetes, which is sort of onset of like type two diabetes in pregnancy. And then there are a few other very rare types of diabetes, which often get misdiagnosed as one of the other ones, but they're so, they're very, very rare. And honestly, I cannot tell you the names of them right now. I was reading them the other day. I was like, Ooh, I cannot remember the names of those, but they're just a very, very rare forms of sort of diabetes, but I think it acts the same essentially. And so essentially it's blood glucose, it leads to blood glucose abnormalities. So we see people's hemoglobin A1C values go up. That's a measure of blood sugar in the bloodstream over three months. We see fasting glucose go up. And those are sort of the ways that diabetes is diagnosed. What happens when someone's A1C or blood glucose is high? So what happens is it means that there's too much sugar in the bloodstream. And the problem with that is that one, it's not getting into the cells to produce an adequate amount of energy that the body needs. Two, those blood sugar crystals hanging out in the bloodstream kind of cause problems with the small little vascular and capillaries of the like fingers and kidneys and all sorts of things. So they can cause problems and they can sort of cause damage. And that's why we see things like neuropathy, just losing feeling in certain parts of the body, usually feet fingers. That's where they have those tiny little blood vessels. I was trying to say blood vessels earlier and I don't know why it didn't come out of my mouth, but that was the word I was trying to say. (laughs) Blood vessels and capillaries. And so, you know, you have those little tiny blood vessels in the kidney too, and it can do damage. And that's why we see things like kidney disease forming with uncontrolled diabetes over time. And so, yeah, it just kind of wreaks havoc on the body. Yeah, sounds like. I mean, before we even get into the intricacies of that, how does someone develop diabetes? Because I think there's so much, like you're saying, misinformation, if we're going to use buzzwords about this. So where does it come from? So I'm going to talk mostly about type 2 diabetes because that's the one that I think a lot of people feel concerned about because it happens 
way more often, but with type one diabetes, it's an autoimmune disorder. And I think people really don't fully understand why that happens. There may be, I'm not sure if there's a genetic component with that as heavily, but, and forgive me for not knowing that (laughs) exactly, but with type two diabetes, there tends to be a hereditary factor. So if it runs in your family, you probably have a risk of developing diabetes. Why that happens? I think lots of people have ideas about that, but I don't know that we know why exactly that develops beyond like some people might have a history of it and not develop it. And some people have a history of it and don't. So as far as why that happens, it can be complicated. You know, it could be a history of eating disorder that comes into play because what I've seen in my work is that when people have weight cycles a lot through their life, it might put them at risk. It's an inflammatory condition. We know that weight suppression and diets are inflammatory and that probably is not helping health. I wouldn't say that there's real solid evidence that I'm pointing to towards that. That's more anecdotal than what I see in my practice, just in terms of people who have dieted their whole life and then sort of they're getting this diagnosis of pre-diabetes. They're like, I don't understand. I've worked so hard (laughs) to to diet my whole life. And here it is anyway. And um, could be some environmental factors. You know, we don't fully know why people get it, but there is a strong hereditary factor. Yeah. I'm just thinking about this piece about weight that people keep talking about is your weight. It's what you're eating. You're eating too much sugar. You're eating too much insert, whatever food you consider bad is. And what you're saying is that there isn't really evidence for that. There isn't evidence that if you just gain weight, you're going to get diabetes. So there is a correlation between higher weights and certain metabolic conditions and diabetes would be one of them. So that's a correlation but we don't know if that's necessarily causal. It could be the other way around. It could be that, and there's some growing evidence around this and it makes sense why it happens, but that weight gain might be an early sign of insulin resistance. In that case, we don't know. Let me pause you. Yeah. How do those connect? Do you mean, why is it an early sign of? Yeah, meaning like in what way does insulin resistant or cells that are insulin resistant. Is that how you would say it? Cells that are insulin resistant or insulin resistance. Yeah. Okay. That thing. How does that sort of connect with weight gain? Actually, that is a good question. And somebody, a few months ago, I saw this great chart about how that sort of happens. But again, that's not, I don't know that we know exactly why that would happen, but we do see, for instance, in somebody with PCOS, who has insulin resistance and weight gain, that it's not necessarily weight gain causing the insulin resistance. But I would guess part of the reason would be, and somebody's probably going to have a better answer to this than me, but part of the reason might be as the cells aren't getting the energy that they need, the body might become better at storing fat over time. Sort of like with dieting. So when somebody diets and loses weight, their body learns how to store fat better. So when that food does come in, they just, you know, they have a lower metabolism, they store fat better. I have a feeling it's probably related to that, but somebody else might explain that better. And I sometimes take this information in and I go, oh yeah, that mechanism totally makes sense to me. And I go, but I don't remember it. I just remember that. (laughs) No, but that makes enough sense. Yeah. I think that makes enough sense. So what's the, what's the pre-diabetes thing? Right. So pre-diabetes is this category that was created, uh, I want to say in the late 90s. It was created on the advice of probably an advisory board, probably with people with 
sitting on it with ties to the pharmaceutical industry. I'm always a little bit skeptical. (laughs) Yeah, I'm always a little bit skeptical of the pre-diabetes category. Some people say, hey, it's an opportunity to get treatment earlier and to prevent onset. And that could be. So pre-diabetes is when you're in the US, it's when your blood sugar goes over. It's 5.7 A1C or above to 6.4. Oh my gosh. I hope I remembered that. (laughs) 6.5 would be considered having diabetes, I believe. This is really bad with remembering numbers, by the way. <laughs> so these are numbers um, you can easily look up though. So you can look them up. And I would, yeah, I would always defer to the American Diabetes Association for the most accurate because the other thing is that they do change. So for instance, in Canada, the category for pre-diabetes for A1C is higher. It was like 6.0 to 6.4. So you cross the border and then you don't have diabetes anymore? That's correct. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Goes away if you go to Canada. Uh, your pre-diabetes goes away if you go to Canada. Yeah. So I'm originally from Canada, and I always thought that part of the reason for that was that Canada doesn't have like there's no drug ads in Canada. At least there weren't when I was there 20 years ago. Really? Yeah. The first time I saw an ad for a drug on TV was when I moved to the U.S. and. 2002. And I was like, what? There were drugs being advertised on TV. So (laughs) you have a nationalized healthcare, you know, system and people usually get medications paid for through their, their work insurance. So there is a health insurance that's through work, but it's just not the industry for drugs up there. Well, there isn't the same pharmaceutical industry up there that there is here. But I think just with the national healthcare system, it's, there's an approach to medication that's quite different. So it's not like you can go to your doctor and say, hey, give me this. It's like, no, you're going to get the one that we recommend and then we're going to follow this protocol. So it's just the flexibility isn't there with what you can ask your doctor for. So I, I think that because they can't just sell drugs earlier, that they probably just have a higher cutoff because they don't have the pressure from the pharmaceutical industry. I am like basically... Kind of guessing at all this. though, because yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Even if it's not the answer, there is something about the financial incentive not being there that just completely changes the game. Right. We do know that that pressure from the pharmaceutical industry does influence things. Like it influenced, you know, the cutoff for BMI for the so-called overweight and obese categories being raised in the late '90s. Like we know that there were people sitting on that task force that had ties to the pharmaceutical industry. So we know that there is pressure. And the other thing is with pre-diabetes is that not everybody that gets pre-diabetes will go on to develop diabetes. So I believe the CDC, these are CDC numbers, but it was 2% of people with pre-diabetes will go on within a year to develop diabetes. And then 10% within five years will go on to develop diabetes. So those are pretty low numbers. So it's not, you know, when you get pre-diabetes, to me, it's a little bit of a, I don't know. It's a panic category, I feel like. But I think there are ways to use that and to say, maybe this is just a time for a check-in with self-care and to see how I'm doing with looking after myself. Do I need some help? You know, Do I need some help with nutrition? Do I need some help with movement? Stuff like that. So I see it as just a time for reflection and saying, okay, is there anything I can do for myself right now? So it's interesting. What I'm assuming the normal response is how can I check in and change things is how can I lose weight right now? How can I implement some sort of diet? That is not what we're saying. No, 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 no. Right. Because that is often, unfortunately, the advice that doctors give when somebody has been diagnosed with prediabetes 
it's usually the standard advice is, well, you just have to lose weight. And the reason why is a lot of the studies that say, oh, people who lose 5 to 10% of their weight can improve their numbers. The problem is we don't know if the weight loss improves it or if what they do to lose weight, maybe eat differently or exercise more, have an impact. And the other problem is that when people do lose weight, it's usually temporary and it comes back within three to five years. And usually health behaviors aren't sustained. They're often unsustainable anyway, which is why they're not sustained in the first place. The advice to lose weight for prediabetes is one of those, well, this, is, this will fix it temporarily while you starve. The other thing is that often people don't eat enough food when they're trying to lose weight. And so that starvation might be masking the symptoms of prediabetes or diabetes. But it's also probably increasing inflammation in the body too. We know from Janet Tamayama's work, she's out of UCLA. She um, kind of talked about how she did a great study about cortisol and dieting and how cortisol is increased with dieting. And so it's kind of an inflammatory response. You don't want your body in that kind of situation all the time. That's what dieting does. And so that's how I think that dieting probably contributes to worsening blood sugars. So it's not just harmful. I mean, dieting is harmful, period. But for somebody who has a predisposition or or is pre-diabetic, the inflammation is that much more harmful. Right. And I think that's why we see a lot of those metabolic syndrome or, you know, whatever they're calling it now, but happening in people who might be of higher weight. Well, people who are in higher weight bodies are often encouraged to diet from a young age. And so we might see a lot of weight cycling. And that's why we might see kind of worsening health. I actually do believe it's the dieting that makes our health worse. And so I think that, you know, the weight loss advice is really terrible and harmful advice when we know that actually there are a lot of things you can do with eating and exercise with eating that's not restrictive and exercise that's not punitive. And it's not just eating and exercise. There's a whole other world of self-care out there that has nothing to do with those things. Okay. Let's talk about those in terms of food, movement, and everything else. What are some things that you could implement? In addition for food and exercise or other than? Let's start with food and exercise and then other than in addition at the end. Okay. So the people I work with, I'll just use them as an example. They come from a background of dieting often. And what I see is that people aren't eating all day. This is so common in my practice. It's like 75% of the people in my practice, they're trying to not eat all day. And they go, I don't understand why I binge at night or I overeat at night. Well, that's really hard on your body. I understand why you're binging at night. You're starving, right? And so that's really hard on the body to go all day without food. And so the first thing we kind of recommend in our program, what I do personally is eating just regular meals throughout the day, starting with breakfast, giving your body this signal that energy is going to be coming in. It doesn't need to stress out and keep giving it sort of regular meals throughout the day, you know, that contain all the macronutrients like carbs, protein, fat, some fiber foods. And sometimes that can be really hard because people are totally traumatized by diets too. So it might be like, I absolutely hate vegetables. It's like, well, you know what? The way diets treat vegetables, I don't blame you. And it might be, hey, maybe you can start experimenting with ways to make them taste good. That's adding oils and dressings and and fats and sauces and all sorts of things, right? You can do that. It doesn't make the vegetable not good for you. And so just sort of moving towards this place of balance with meals. I see that change people's blood sugars for the better most of the time. Just eating regular meals. It doesn't even matter half the time what they're eating as long as they're eating pretty regularly. Honoring so hunger. Let me pause you just for a second. Yeah. It doesn't even matter to a certain extent what you're eating. Just eat consistently. 
I find that's the biggest improvement. I don't want to say like, it doesn't matter what you eat because I'm a dietitian. Okay. I feel like, sure. you know, that there are lots of good foods out there. I think it's great to get variety. But when I see somebody go from starving to just eating, like, let's just put a meal in here. Who cares what it is? Already, I see improvements in their health and also things like blood pressure. You know, a client who was like, I can eat Lucky Charms for breakfast. I'm like, I would like you to just eat something. And if it's Lucky Charms, yes, please. Blood pressure went down. Lipids went down. Everything got wow. like, and not just, I'm not saying that there's Lucky Charms or a magical food. What I'm saying is starting well, with that. Lucky Charms. <laughs> they are pretty lucky. <laughs> <laughs> that starting out with just the body getting food at regular intervals was really helpful for that person that the inflammation is sort of going down, the blood pressure is going, the lipids were going down. This person didn't have diabetes, but I do see that in people with, you know, my clients with pre-diabetes that they often stabilize and improve their blood sugars, just eating regular meals throughout the day, enough food. Now, of course, then you can add in fruits and vegetables and experiment with those as you like, because those those are foods that have anti-inflammatory properties and those help and they have fiber. They slow the absorption of blood sugar in. Getting balanced meals is really important because all of those macronutrients combined together help to slow the absorption of sugar into your system so that you get a nice, slow, even rise. And I also think that those make the most satisfying meals and taste the best. So if you've got some protein, some fat, some carb, some fiber foods that also contain some of those foods, you know, that we see people more satisfied, have longer lasting energy, their bodies are happy, their blood sugar's rising a little bit slower. And that's a non-restrictive change, right? Because this is, we're not talking about limiting the amount you eat. It's really moving towards balance and getting enough food. Yeah. And then what about the movement piece? Right. So movement 100% helps blood sugars to help manage blood sugars. So movement can both use up available blood sugar in the system and then can also help increase your insulin sensitivity. So decrease insulin resistance. They can make your cells more sensitive to the insulin that's there. And the other thing is that people have been traumatized by exercise <laughs> through diets, right? And that it's this kind of go hard or go home, have it be punishing. And the truth is like any movement is really helpful for diabetes. And so we kind of encourage people to start with what feels good and experiment and go from there, right? And it's going to be based on what that person's goals are. Maybe some people want to move a lot. Maybe some people say, I want to move as little as possible, but enough to have the health benefit. We really have to put it back to what does that person want and put it on, you know, what are your values for this? And it needs to be patient-centered, client-centered. Yeah, I, I love pivoting away from the punitive way of moving because, there's so much compensatory stuff with, oh, you ate this, you have to work off in this way. And this is, if you feel like walking, that's great. If you feel like going to the gym, that's great. If you feel like dancing, that's great. If you like none of those, find something else. Yeah. And I, I find most people actually do want to move, that they feel good doing some sort of movement. But then I also find people don't give themselves credit for what they're already doing. <laughs> so... Like someone was like, well, I went for a walk and I had to walk and do this and go grocery And I said, well, that's movement. Like, no, that doesn't count. It's like, that actually counts as movement, <laughs> right? So starting with what you're already doing well and then deciding, well, what else would feel good? And so in terms of how exercise impacts blood sugars, so something cardiovascular to, you know, leaves you panting a bit, but walking is cardiovascular. You don't have to actually pant to enjoy it and get the benefits from it. 
that tends to use up the available blood sugar that's in the bloodstream. Things like weight training, people disregarded that, I think, because they thought it wasn't like vigorous enough or something didn't make you pant or wasn't, you know, somehow it didn't count. But actually um, resistance training, so using weights has been shown to be really useful for blood sugars as well, for blood sugar management. And that helps improve insulin sensitivity. And then another sort of like caveat, if you don't like weight training, don't do weight training. (laughs) Exactly. And also just know that resistance exercise comes in different forms. So like yoga is a resistance exercise. Pilates are resistant exercises. Yeah. Yeah. You get both with that. Yeah. So what are some of the other things that you had in mind, you know, not associated with food and movement that are helpful? Sleep is a big one. So we have a lot of blood sugar regulation go on while we're sleeping. And unfortunately, yeah. So if you don't get enough sleep, that is going to impact your blood sugars in a few different ways. One, if you don't get enough sleep consistently, your body is re-energizes right during sleep. So if you don't get enough sleep, you're low energy the next day, you're going to be seeking energy probably in more food than you would be necessarily hungry for. Your body's just craving that energy to keep it going. Oh, I definitely have experienced that. Oh, absolutely. Those days you're like... (laughs) Well, that was a five-hour night, and now I just need chocolate all day. Yeah, I was just thinking, where's my Twix? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And the occasional day like that is fine. What we're talking about is when people are consistently not getting enough sleep, it becomes a problem. And so, yeah, you do have some sort of blood sugar regulation going on through the night. You know, your body is releasing its own sugar through the night, too, to sort of keep you alive and to help you wake up in the morning. That's cool. Yeah. So we have storage sugar in our bodies, in our liver, in the form of glycogen, our muscles. And so it's there to sort of keep an even blood sugar all the time. And so even if you're not getting carbs, your body will release its store of carbs and it will make its own carbohydrate too, its own glucose. So that's how important carbs are, glucose is to the body. And it has all this way, all these ways to get it to you, (laughs) to get your energy going. Yeah. This is an unrelated question just to interject because it popped into my head. We're talking about high blood glucose. What about the opposite? So if somebody, maybe not necessarily somebody with diabetes, but somebody who finds themselves like sort of suddenly getting this crash and like it feels like a low blood sugar thing, what would you say to that? Like, why is that happening or? Well, for yeah, we can start with that. Why does that happen? Most people don't have... So one, if your blood sugar is going low, your body is going to work hard to maintain your blood sugar so it doesn't go dangerously low. The people who typically experience dangerous lows are more going to be people who are using insulin or certain oral medication combination therapies for diabetes. Most of us aren't going to have dangerously low blood sugar because we have stores of sugar in our bodies that when we're getting hungry and when the body is releasing its own sugar, when the you know glucagon is coming out, which is the opposite hormone to insulin, it kind of releases the sugar from the body rather than tuck it away for use. So some people, I think when they've gone too long, you know, they experience that fatigue, grumpiness. Yeah. I mean, you need to eat, <laughs> right? Like you, you this is usually happening when people, oh, you know, I've gone five, six, seven hours without eating. It's like, yep, you need to eat, right? So your body can do so much, but after a while, it's not going to release all of its stored sugar. It's going to do a certain percentage. Boy, I learned that percentage in school and I can't remember, but it's going to save some 
you know, on reserve. And so then it has to do a bunch of other things. And it really doesn't want to go to the point of having to release fat from storage because that's an expensive process for the body. It takes energy to release the energy. The body's probably trying to make you at this point, like get some food in. It's like, I'm going to slow you down and make you sluggish. So most people don't have low blood, like hypoglycemia. There are some people who do have certain conditions that cause hypoglycemia, but most of us aren't going to have that. And so what's happening is your blood sugar is getting low, but probably not dangerously low, just like low enough for you to please get some food in there now. And so when you're having that, that, yeah, right. And so you want to get blood sugar. And when somebody with diabetes is having a blood sugar low, they want to have something sweet immediately, something like orange juice, a glucose tablet, raisins, something really sweet that doesn't have fat or protein in it to slow the absorption. But most of us don't have that problem. But when we are experiencing those feelings of like, blood sugar is getting kind of low, you want to eat. That's a sign to eat, basically. So maybe not a medical condition, but just a sign of extreme hunger. Yeah, I call that late hunger signs, very late hunger signs, right? When somebody's getting shaky, irritable, a little beyond hangry, a little confused or fatigued, I'm like, that's a really late hunger sign. Some people will tell me like, well, that's when I know it's time to eat. Ooh, okay. (laughs) We might need to do some work here. (laughs) It It was probably time to eat a few hours ago, but most of us don't get dangerous blood sugar lows because our liver does the job of regulating the blood sugar with, you know, releasing it and making sure we have available energy. So our body does a lot of amazing things without us even knowing it. Yeah. I mean, especially while we're sleeping. Yes, absolutely. So sleep is one of those things, going back to that, sleep is just one of those things that really does impact health in a big way. So you want to try and make sure you're getting enough sleep and enough quality sleep. If you think, oh, I'm getting eight or nine hours of sleep at night, but I'm exhausted all day, well, maybe talk to your doctor. There could be sleep, obstructive sleep apnea happening. That's the most common thing. There is a connection between diabetes and sleep where diabetes can also interrupt sleep as well. And so it's just... Yeah, I don't know the exact mechanism and I can't remember if it's, um, it could be whenever it's connected to magnesium because magnesium can be something that people with diabetes are depleted in. And I said that awkwardly, but anyway, you that understand thing, what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> that, they don't have enough. <laughs> they might not have enough. And also not having enough magnesium can exacerbate diabetes as well. So it's kind of a, a vicious circle, but magnesium also really is useful for helping you sleep. So it could be related to that but it can interrupt, diabetes can interrupt sleep a little bit as well. And so you really want to work on sleep and, you know, we have a whole module in our program about how to, how to improve sleep. Basically, there are a ton of things, but you might have to work on it. It might be putting your phone away an hour before bed, having a bedtime ritual, making sure you're getting in a little earlier, trying to do calm things, maybe do meditation apps or something like that. Having a darker room and a cooler room, if you can control the temperature, usually people sleep better in a cooler room. So there's a lot of things you can do with sleep. So that's another big one. It's a big focus of our program. And then stress, you know, stress and anxiety would say is the other big one. We have 14 modules of things that you can work on, but a lot of them are supportive. Yeah. A lot of them are supportive, you know, and understanding why healthcare isn't weight inclusive and how that impacts you and stuff like that. But I would say stress and anxiety is a big part of our program too. And learning how to sort of manage that and get help for that and do what you can for that because stress actually increases blood sugars as well. Oh, who would have thought? Wow. I mean, it feels like there's so much in here to manage. (laughs) Yeah, it is. That's why we say, I say like, 
pre-diabetes might be a good time just to check in on how well self-care is going, where you need help, what you can do for yourself and that kind of thing. I wouldn't use it as a time to panic, but people do use it as a time to panic. Um, I would not use it as a time to restrict. I would use it as a time to say, do I get enough sleep? You know, how's my stress level? I have some clients that have said, you know, they went through this enormously stressful year and then all of a sudden they got a pre-diabetes diagnosis. I'm like, yeah, you went through an enormously stressful year. I bet your blood sugars were really kind of increased through the stress. Yeah. I mean, this is so often we talk about not even specific to diabetes, but dieting and the amount of stress and obsessing that it takes to diet is so much more unhealthy than the actual foods that you're putting into your body. And we're not saying that foods aren't helpful in some capacities, but there's a large component of this that's stress on the body. I mean, you can tell, you can see it. Yeah, absolutely. And the stress of weight stigma, right? Like people in larger bodies aren't treated well in our society and that's stressful. And the way they're told to take care of themselves is to be abusive towards themselves and to develop an eating disorder, essentially. Yeah, and then we praise them for it. Right. Oh, you look great as opposed to, actually, that's a big problem. Yeah, congratulations on starving and being smaller. (laughs) I mean, it's horrible. So I think that looking at stigma that people experience... We have to think about trauma. So we've made sure our program is trauma-informed too. So just because that can really have an impact on somebody's health, right? So, and that might not be something that they can fix necessarily. Um, Certainly things you can work on, right? But we can't go back in our time machine and undo the trauma. So really just considering that in self-care. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about, besides for some barriers, that people have, they don't necessarily know some of this information. So hopefully they got a little glimpse into some of the information that can be really helpful for them. I'm thinking about the shame attached to either a diabetes diagnosis or just being in someone who's in a larger body, that that can sometimes just completely stop people in their tracks and say like, forget it, I'm going to go hide in my room. 100%. And that's what actually, (laughs) the first module of our program is like reducing diabetes diagnosis shame. because. It is huge. The shame that people feel when they get diabetes as though they've caused this for themselves. It's your fault. Right. Well, we don't know exactly why people get diabetes. We do know, again, strong hereditary factor. But beyond that, people really blame themselves for getting something that, you know, maybe their entire family got. And it's like, you know, there's a good chance that you had no control over this, right? And so really working on that shame and, Understanding that one, we don't bring these things on ourselves. And two, that shame does not inspire long term good self care. It doesn't inspire people to take positive action. And so, really, just working to let go of the shame and reminding people it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to not feel great. And you're going to do the best you can, but this isn't about fault and blame. Yeah. I have one last question. I don't know if this is a thing. I'm just remembering something that I watched years ago. I don't even remember where it was, what part of a documentary, but it was some form of diet culture informing people of the idea that you can reverse your diabetes diagnosis if you just follow this and this diet. And they had this whole thing where people did it and they actually reversed their diagnosis. So I guess my question really is, besides for the diet culture problem piece, is it possible to reverse a diagnosis? of diabetes, does it ever happen? So I know that is touted by some programs. 
out there? And I don't actually believe so. And what I have found is when they talk about reverse your diabetes diagnosis, what they're talking about is an extreme diet. I think it's often keto. Oh, yes. Or paleo. Yeah. I think it's tied to that. And yeah, of course, if you starve your body of carbohydrate, you're going to see better looking numbers. But you have not reversed your diabetes if you have to do this incredibly extreme and unsustainable way of eating for the rest of your life that most people actually can't do forever. And I have many clients, I call them like the keto refugees and the paleo refugees. Like they <laughs> kind of, they're like, that diet made me so sick. Like, of course, my numbers look great. And, and I was having panic attacks or I was just craving sugar all day long. And it was, it took their whole lives to manage it. So to me, that's not, you have not reversed your diabetes. If you have to do this extreme diet, you're not living normally when you're eating those things. And so what those diets do, I think I mentioned earlier is they often mask the symptoms of diabetes. I think when you're starving, when I worked in a hospital years ago, I worked in the VA and I had one really interesting patient and he, he had many problems. So, but one of the problems was that he often wouldn't eat enough for long periods of time and he had a spinal cord injury. So the problem was he would then come into the hospital with a lot of pressure injuries, but he also had diabetes. So when he would come into the hospital starved because he had eating difficulties, his numbers looked fantastic, but he was starved and he had pressure ulcers, which you need to feed to heal. So as we would feed him, often we would have to feed him with tube feeding or supplements, uh, whatever he was able to do at the time. His pressure ulcers would start to heal, but his blood sugars would start going up now. And now the presence of diabetes was there again, right? So when you starve, you do become more insulin sensitive. That's true. But most of us can't maintain starvation for very long. And that's a good thing because you die if you can, right? Maintain starvation long-term. And so, you know, then the doctor say, oh, can you do something about his tube feeds or his whatever? It's like, you know, he's on, he's on the diabetic formula. Like he's going to have diabetes. You got to give him some more medication. Like he has to eat. We can't starve him. We can't have him starved with pressure ulcers and die of those. He has to eat, heal those. And then let's manage the medication for diabetes because we know how to do that. And so it was just a really, that stuck in my mind forever as and then that cycle happened several times because I worked in that place for several years and he would have come in with the same problems, right? And um, that happened a lot and for him. So starvation, improved diabetes numbers, but then very sick, you know, very gravely ill. And then refed, increased blood sugars. You know, it just goes to show that actually that starving didn't help him. And I know that those programs aren't saying starve, but they are essentially starving you of carbohydrates. So I don't actually think to a certain extent. Yeah. That was a really long answer, by the way. So I apologize for that. But what I'm basically, it was very helpful to hear it that way. Cause I'm imagining this person to be one of the people in the documentary. We just see it years down the line and we don't just see it that one day that the numbers are great. It's you see the behind the scenes. This happens like with the biggest loser and things like that, where you're shown a beautiful picture, just do this. And this is what your life is going to be like, but you haven't followed up six months later with this person or two years later, and you don't actually see the full picture. Right. And I think that I maintained a strict diet for many years, but nothing as strict as what anybody's doing now with the keto and the paleo. And I, I just don't understand how people can do that. But if, you know, that's what it takes to reverse your diabetes. You have not reversed it. You still have diabetes. Now you just have another problem, which is how to manage this impossible diet. And 
listen, if there are people out there who are doing it, I don't want to say they're doing it wrong because everybody gets to decide how to take care of themselves. There are people who eat low carb and they say, that works for me and I can do it. So I want to say that whatever works for somebody, they should do. But we also want to look at what work the definition of works means. <laughs> so if it's like, it works for that one thing, but actually the rest of your life is a mess. It's like, oh, that might not be working that well. However, like I said, if there are people who are doing it and it's just fine, it's not a problem for them. There's no one way to manage diabetes, which is what we sort of teach in our program too. But we still teach a balanced plate. We don't talk about low carb. But if there are people out there who want to manage their diabetes that way and they find it's fine and they like it and it's not a problem, I'm not here to say that that's the wrong way to do it. People get to pick how they take care of themselves. But for people who have already been through this whole starvation thing with diets, they already know that's not going to work for them. It didn't work when they wanted to lose weight. It's not probably going to work any better with a different reason for wanting to lose weight. You know, your biology doesn't care why you need to lose weight. So I think that the non-diet sort of health at every size approach for diabetes is really valuable for people who don't want to go through that restriction. You know, people with history of eating disorder, it's a really great approach for those people. Yeah. I know I said that was my last question, but now I have another last question. Ask away. <laughs> About You had mentioned the medication and I think that there's, I've heard metformin thrown around. What's the medication piece? How is it helpful? What's that side of it? Right. So medication is also available to help control diabetes and manage blood sugars. And it's a really useful thing. People live in this fear of having to take medication for their conditions. And that's unfortunate because we have so many good medications now to help improve your life, extend your life, help manage your self-care. A lot of people, when they first get a new diabetes diagnosis, some will say, oh, I want to try and manage this on my own. Usually doctors want to recommend some medication right away. And usually metformin is the first one. I think the ADA probably still recommends it as the sort of first line medication to use. It's a good medication. It works for a lot of people. It's not too expensive and people can be on it for a long time. And then as diabetes is a progressive condition, people might find that they need different medications as time goes by. Oral med combination therapies can be useful. And then people with type 2 diabetes may progress on to needing insulin. And that's just something that does happen for some people. And it doesn't mean that they have failed. The truth is diabetes is a progressive condition and it probably will need more medication as time goes by. And so we're very pro-medication in the sense of like, do what you need to do and work with your healthcare team to see what works best for you. There are so many good options out there. And I have so many clients that when one stops working and sometimes medications do just stop working for no good reason. It doesn't even necessarily mean that diabetes has gotten worse. It's just stopped working for that person. That there are so many good options to sort of keep trying. And that's amazing. <laughs> that's yeah, really if you good. Have the resource and let's take advantage of it. There's a lot of shame around medication. And I know it's a pain to take another pill or several pills. I know that feeling for sure. But you know, I think it's more than that. I think that there's this shame of like, I should be able to control this without medication. Yeah. Right. And especially the messages that we've been getting about diabetes is like completely false. So of course we're going to take responsibility for something that's totally not. Yeah. I think it's great that we have so many available medications and they're always making more. And those can really extend life and improve life. And it's a wonderful thing. And so, you know, no shame if somebody wants to try it without, but also no shame if somebody needs medication. Sometimes medication will help you eat more normally. And we teach intuitive eating, you know, 
let me back up. We don't actually teach intuitive eating through this program, but it is based in intuitive eating. So if somebody needs more help with that, they might need to work sort of with a dietitian one-on-one to do that. But it's very based in that. And so sometimes medication frees people up to like, I can just eat more normally this way. And that's a huge quality of life issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to learn more about this or find you, where can they find you? Okay. So I can be found at my website, daretonotdiet.com. That's me. The program is called Self-Care for Diabetes. And that is our website. It's self-care, the number four diabetes. But I think we actually also have self-care, the word for diabetes. So we have both of those URLs. Amazing. Um, And if somebody, yeah, if somebody wants to sort of learn a little bit more about sort of the myths around weight and diabetes, we actually have a free guide and I can give you the link for that for the show notes if, if you'd like. Seven surprising myths about diabetes and weight. And so we just go through some of the, the myths around what you have to do around weight and diabetes. We give some information about how you can actually, what you can do for yourself easily. And yeah. And so that kind of gives you a sense of how we work as well. And I think that those are all the ways to find me. You can usually Google me by my name too, Glennis Oyston. Like I'm the only one with that name. That's convenient. Yeah. (laughs) It's super easy to find me online. And the only social media I'm on is Facebook because social media exhausts me. So (laughs) I'm on Facebook. I think my page is like Dare to Not Diet or something like that. So um, also easy to find if you just search. Yeah. Yeah, I'll link to all of those in the show notes so people can find you easily. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was fun and informative. And thank you. Well, thank you for having me on and giving me a chance to talk about this. And I am so grateful for all the non-diet dietitians out there who also work in diabetes. There are many. So there are many options to get help. And thank you for helping spread the word for this. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.